Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Park Church Podcast. My name is James Lapine. Glad that you're with us today. Uh, on this show, it's my job to talk with well-known authors, speakers, thinkers, uh, etc., about the intersection of faith and day-to-day life. And our guest today is Hannah Anderson. Uh, she's the author of Made for More, An Invitation to Live in God's Image, and her most recent book, Humble Roots, How Humility Grounds and Nourishes Your Soul. Uh, If you're interested in education, politics, culture, uh, and what it looks like to practically uh, find your identity in Christ, then I think you're really going to like this episode. Uh, So we'll get right to it. Here is Hannah Anderson. Hi, James. It's great to be with you. Hey, Hannah. Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, For those who aren't familiar with you, I've given a little bit of an intro, but could you give us a, a quick Hannah Anderson bio? Sure. Um, I live in southwest Virginia, uh, surrounded by the Blue Ridge Mountains, and I live here with my husband, Nathan, who is a pastor of a small country church, and we are raising our three children here. So most of my um, time is spent kind of corralling all the family activities and working in the community um, here, and in my spare time, I try to write and think and uh, generally keep my head above water. <laughs> Wonderful. And how old are your kids? Um, my daughter, Phoebe, is 12. We have a son, Harry, who's 10, and Peter is 7. Okay. So we're moving into a phase of more independence on their part, yeah. and it's been a lot of fun. We are really just loving this elementary, upper elementary, beginning of middle school years. Um, we don't have diapers or baby food. Everyone, you know, a Saturday morning, my kids can get up and pour cereal into a bowl for themselves. <laughs> so for all you young parents, there is hope. Yes, yes. There, there is so, uh, yeah, we're really loving this stage of family life. That's fun. Our um, our daughter Ivy turns one on Friday, uh, and my wife was commenting this morning actually about uh, how her breakfast is pretty much she'll make something for her and Ivy, and then they'll just kind of split it and sit on the floor and eat it together. Mm-hmm. And that's life right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure she'll be encouraged to hear that that doesn't last forever. Do you have any skunks? Not forever. Do you have skunks in Virginia? Uh- we do. We have a family that a family of skunks that in the springtime kind of walks across our yard okay. every so often. And what do you? So, how do you uh, fend them off? My dog got sprayed by a skunk this morning on our we walk. We stay away from them. <laughs> we we don't have pets. Um, okay. We had a dog for uh, about a year or two, and my husband's allergic, and so he couldn't be inside, Mm -hmm. and he was just too lonely outside, and so we found a happier home for him, Um, and so with, like, skunks, we just, we stay away, they stay away, we let them walk past, Um, but yeah, no, we're, we we don't, we figure we've got children to take care of, so. That's a good Probably a good approach. Leave the skunks alone. For anyone, though, who does need help with skunks, uh, tomato sauce and uh, apple cider vinegar uh, seem to help out this morning. So there's just a free tip for you podcast listeners uh, as it concerns uh, skunks. Um, How did you guys land in Virginia? Well, my husband grew up here. So we are actually about an hour from where he grew up. He grew up on top of this mountain. the whole county he grew up in, I think, has like 14,000 people. 
he had one high school for the whole county, one stoplight for the whole county. Wow. Um, and we met at college, but there, I have been told, and I believe it is true, that there is this homing device secretly implanted in boys that are born in Virginia. Okay. And they can go and wander around, but they will always come back. <laughs> and so about five years ago, he, we just kind of looked at each other and he said, I just want to move back to Virginia. Yeah. So we um, looked for work near where he grew up and found uh, this position and he uh, was called to pastor here. And so it's a very similar uh, culture and area that he grew up in. Um, and we're close, close enough to family. It's about an hour away. Yeah. And so we've been here about five years now. Okay. And was that an adjustment for you? Were you a city girl? No, I actually, I grew up in Pennsylvania, but okay. I grew up in a very similar community. Um, it was in the western part of Pennsylvania, mountain foothills region. My family roots um, are working class, mountain roots. So coming back to this part of Virginia was not that much of a stretch for me. And and actually, a lot of the things that attracted my husband and I to each other in college were we had gone off, both of us had gone off to the big city for college, and we would run into people who just had no understanding of our backgrounds. And then when we met each other, it was like, oh, you understand this. Oh, okay. And so that was actually a point of connection for us. Gotcha. Cool. Um, okay, great. Tell us, I, I, is it fair to say that most people have probably heard of you through Made for More? Um, that is what uh, kind of started the conversation for me is my first uh, book. And I think what, where people first heard the name Hannah Anderson, probably. Mm, okay. um, and that actually has been a whirlwind over the last four to five years. But yeah. um, that was probably what gave me the first... Uh, visibility, public visibility sure. um, of my writing. I think that's and what ideas. Yeah, yeah. We, we had you out to Park Church three years yeah. ago now. Um, two? Uh, two or three. Yeah, something yeah. Like I think that. it was two. Yeah. And it was because we we loved the book um, so much. Could you uh, tell us a little bit of, of what it's about? So, Made for More is an exploration of what it means to be human, what it means to be an image bearer. And some of that conversation came out of uh, a, a burden I was developing that we were talking a lot about what it meant to be men and women. Uh, we talked a lot about within the evangelical church about how to fulfill the various roles that we had as in, you know, within our femininity, our masculinity. But I felt like we had not laid a foundation for what it meant to be human first. Yeah. And so Made for More kind of came out of my own process of wrestling with those ideas and, and needing to have that base level sense of what does it even mean to be made in God's image. And so um, I had been writing and blogging a little bit and Moody Publishers, one of, one of their assistant publishers had approached me about the possibility of writing. And I would pitch these really safe book ideas to them that, you know, I'm watching the market and I'm like, well, maybe we could do this, you know, talk about women in the new Testament. 
And this particular publisher kept coming back and just saying, no, no, that's been done. That's been done. (laughs) And so finally I said to her, okay, here's the book I really want to write, but I'm not sure how it will be received. And she said, yes, that's it. (laughs) That is the book we want to publish and gave me um, the green light to go ahead and really explore ideas about, um, you know, the nature of being human Theological anthropology is the technical term, what it means to be made with autonomy, what it means to be made with a love for learning, with the drive for work, um, what it means to be holistic in our identity the same way God himself is holistic in um, his identity, what it means to be eternal and, and why we feel disjointed sometimes in time and space. And so... What for me, it did was allow me to process a lot of the larger conversations around gender and womanhood through the lens of, wait a minute, we are designed and made to look like God. And that is the core calling on our life, not necessarily to um, conform to certain cultural visions of womanhood or manhood, but to display God's glory through our lives. Yeah. That's good. Um, and, and I would recommend the book for men or women. I don't know if you feel the same way. Um, but we, we will link to that at parkchurchdenver.org slash podcast. You can click on Hannah's name there and, uh, and find a link to her book. And I think, uh, anyone would find it, uh, really, really helpful. Yeah. I did write it with women in mind as the primary audience, but my secret not so secret now if I tell you, my secret hope <laughs> yeah. was that it would be one of the first books that men said, oh, I wish that was written for me. Huh. Because I feel like a lot of times in publishing, women are reading over the shoulder of men, and a lot of the conversations are shaped and the illustrations are shaped by pastors and theologians who tend to be men and I just secretly wanted to reverse that experience for men and let them read over women's shoulders for a little bit and say, oh, wow, that's that's worth reading and learning from the experiences of women. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. So men, uh, order the book for a woman in your life and then borrow it from them when they're done. How's that? That's perfect. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk about education a little bit? Sure. You had a, a series of tweets in February um, that I found helpful. Actually, my, my brother tipped me off to them. I have to admit that I uh, hit up my family yesterday to see if they had any questions that, that um, they wanted me to ask you. And uh, my brother mentioned this series of tweets in February. Uh, you talked through the different options that are available, whether public, private, homeschooling, etc. And then um, encourage people to... to really live into the option that they feel called to without uh, saying that one is definitely better than the other. At least that's how I interpreted it. Could you, do you know what I'm talking about? Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, And I'm coming with a varied background in terms of education. Um, My parents are Christian school educators. I grew up K through 12, even college in Christian education. Um, my husband was public school educated. Our children are now in public schools. Uh, we homeschooled for a couple of years. So I feel like experientially, I've 
been in a lot of different spaces with yeah. this question. Um, and one of the things I think that we stumble over is a lot of times we don't understand that the, these choices are being made in a broader context and we can get caught up in a certain movement, you know, like we can only have Christian schooling or we can, if you, some people would even go to the other extreme and say, well, we really need to be in the public schools because we have to be a presence and we have to be a witness and mm. uh, we need to live missionally. Um, and some people are convicted that, you know, I have to bring my children home because that's the only space that I can, um, you know, maybe your public schools are not uh, able to help your child the way you see fit. Maybe you can't afford Christian school. And one of the things that... Um, we have learned as parents, number one, is that the first level of education is your family in your home. And no matter what choice you end up in, no matter where God leads you, the foundational responsibilities for education are happening in the relationships within your family. Yeah. And as parents, you are ultimately responsible for their growth and development as image bearers. And then once you kind of establish that as base camp, then you can look at your educational options and say, how am I going to use these hmm. to fulfill the goals that I have for my children? Yeah. So I think one of the things that parents can easily fall into is they feel like I have to make the right choice. And then I'm going to put all my eggs in that basket. Mm. And that's going to fulfill my responsibility to my children. And what my husband and I have decided and taken the approach of is these are all tools. Um, Christian school education, public school education, a homeschooling option. These are tools that God has given in context of a whole lot of other tools. And we can use them with freedom with liberty but we also have to know what each tool can accomplish and what it can accomplish mm -hmm. and then compensate in each context without feeling um guilt or less than or feeling superiority um based on those choices that those schooling options are tools in our hands to accomplish a greater um, purpose with our children that's so helpful. Yeah. Um, I, I think especially the bit about making the right choice and then putting all your eggs in one basket, um, that, that can just be, uh, paralyzing, <laughs> right? right? But, but when you see these, as you said, as tools, that's, that's really helpful. We, we live in a neighborhood w with an elementary school blocks away from our home. Um, and our daughter's only one, so we're, we're far off from this, but we wondered, do we send, if we're still living here, do we send her there? Uh, do we homeschool her? Do we let her run around the yard and read books? And, and, you know, we have control over what that educational upbringing looks like. There's a, a semi-private school that uh, is bilingual close by. And we've wondered, and we have friends who go there. We wondered, do we send them there since we're in sort of a Hispanic area? Um, so yeah, it's, it's complicated. And I think, but I think you're right. Once you have that, uh, that foundation of, uh, it's our primary responsibility to shape them into image bearers. And then from there, we have these options around here. Um, and we can see which one we think God is calling us to. And then we can, we can step into that. 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. And I think the way it's played out for us has been a calling of our whole family and the life um, that God has given us as a family unit too. So um, locally we are in a working class community and my husband's pastoring a church. that's very communally based Um, folks here have an identity in our community. Nobody's driving in to the church. You know, it is this community and we had the freedom when we moved here to make any choice we wanted. And we looked at uh, private schools. We thought about homeschooling. And in the end, we really believe that God was leading us to um, partner with our community by having our children in the local public school. And um, we would never make that choice if we thought it would endanger our children's long-term education or spiritual health. Mm. But when we made that choice, it also um, coincided with the call that our family had to serve this community. Mm. Um, And at one point, we actually did look into, when my daughter was moving to middle school, we looked into private uh, private school, and it was wonderful. And it, it marked all the boxes, it ticked all the boxes of our educational philosophy. We never felt so uh, at ease and at one with educators before. Hmm. And my husband and I both came home. We said, this is a wonderful school. Oh, this is exactly what we want. And then within a minute, we looked at each other and we said, and it's exactly not the right calling for our family, hmm. given our larger um, call and you know, going through that process was important. Yeah. Going through the exploration process and putting it out there and saying, this is a possibility. This is a tool. Let's investigate this. And also allowing the Holy Spirit to guide that process and to be confident that he wasn't going to let us make the wrong choice. Yeah. You know, he wasn't going to leave us helpless in the midst of navigating these questions about our children's future. Right. And... So that we've been through the process and every couple of years we'll have to reevaluate and go through it again. <laughs> um, but always confident that God is not going to leave us in the midst of it. Right. Right. Can you, uh, this uh, Benedict option has been in the, in the Christian news a lot lately. Uh, and I think it relates to what we're talking about here, just in terms of, uh, uh of the culture of your family and, uh, uh, engaging with with culture versus uh, shying away from it and, and sort of sequestering, uh, bunkering down into your own little Christian community. Um, Rod Dreher and, and Jamie Smith have had some uh, somewhat heated exchanges this week, which is sort of nerdy Christian news. Most people might not know what I'm talking about, um, but I but I think it matters. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or opinions on the dialogue that's happening about this Benedict option. If not, no worries. Yes, I think it is a fascinating illustration of how we talk past each other hmm. and the assumptions that we bring in based on our denominational and uh, religious context, even though we're all Christian. So I had written a response um in, it was not meant to be a direct response to the Benedict option. Um, Christianity Today had their cover story this last month had been about Benedict option, and they asked for a variety of responses. And um, I had written 
a response that basically said, this is not an evangelical option. Hmm. And I think what I was trying to communicate is that um, Dreyer is a Eastern Orthodox. Uh, he, he's in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so there's certain things about his understanding of community that when he discusses this, he is assuming hmm. certain understanding and vision of the place of the church in the world that is not inherent in evangelical theology. Yeah. And so um, some people have heard him saying in the Benedict option that this is a retreat from the world, that we are hunkering down, we are bunkering down, we have to save ourselves um, from the coming uh, flood of secularism that is going to, that Christian uh, values are going to be um, rejected by the mainstream, that secular individualism of Western society is going to make it impossible for us to practice. Um, and basically, civilization is headed toward collapse. <laughs> and what the Christian community needs to do is to preserve. Our, not only our Christian values, but the values of civilization um, through communal, um, intentional communities where we cultivate the arts and virtue and we're training our children in faith. And then we will be able to share this with the world as we have preserved it for the world. Yeah. And the the difficulty, I think, for anyone who has been an evangelist or even fundamentalism, and we hear key words like retreat, yeah. or we hear um, withdrawal, and we have a knowledge, and some of us have a very personal knowledge of what that means. And within evangelicalism, that means kind of isolationist, yeah. um, saving ourselves while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. And I think those of us that have that experience, we know and we've come through the process of saying, no, that's not a fully formed Christianity. That's mm. not a hopeful Christianity. That's right. not an evangelistic Christianity mm. of taking the gospel to the world, moving outward into the world. And so what I see happening in the broader conversation is that when um, I hear about the Benedict Option, I bring all of my definitions of church that have been formed in evangelicalism and I hear what is being said, and I say, no, that, that cannot function. But what is problematic is, um, you know, Rod is communicating it with the assumptions of a highly communal um, understanding of the Eastern Orthodox Church and a church that exists much more broadly for the good of the world than how we tend to embody our communities hmm. in evangelicalism. Hmm. So I see people talking past each other. Yeah. I also see um, a little bit of misunderstanding of what we mean by the church. And the problem for us as evangelicals is we know a lot of people who would claim to be Christians who are cultural Christians, you know, just to put it bluntly. Mm -hmm. There is a large portion of... Um, industrial evangelicals like they're, they're people who have been raised in the peripheral of the church as god country americana kind of civil religion and so then determining what do we even mean by the church 
And underneath all of these debates are questions of ecclesiology, of missiology, and quite frankly, the Christian church has been splitting over those for 2,000 years. (laughs) Sure. Sure. So maybe it's not uh, totally black and white. Is that what you're telling me? I think we have to be very clear with each conversation. What exactly are we discussing? What exactly are we meaning Mm. when you say retreat for the sake of advance? Mm. Um, I'm not sure evangelical theology can retreat. Hmm. I don't think it's within our systematic. Um, The frame of evangelical theology rests on the Great Commission and personal conversion as the central point of our theology. Our, Our churches, the way we form community, is built on personal conversion and personal expression of belief. Um, so for us, the thing that holds our systematic together is the need to see people evangelized and brought to faith individually. And so when we put that not as central to our theology, we either become fundamentalist or we become something other than evangelicals. And so I, I'm of the opinion that evangelicals who take the Benedict option to its um, full extent will become, um, they'll no longer be evangelicals in the way we understand them culturally. They will have to become magisterial traditions they'll become high church which isn't it isn't a problem i mean i've got plenty of churches uh, friends in those kinds of church traditions but i just don't think you can maintain evangelicalism Mm. right right in the way we understand yeah no that's good i mean defining terms gaining clarity uh figuring out what we're actually talking about i think is you're right if we don't do that then we do talk past each other so that's that's very helpful. Um, okay, let's let's keep going. Let's let's move on to politics. I've got um, two tweets from you that I'm going to read. The first one says, uh, "This is also why I evaluate public leaders on their private lives. Uh, if you cannot govern yourself, you cannot govern a nation." Um, I've I've talked with friends who have said, "Well, I'm not electing a pastor in chief, so who who cares what the private life is like?" Um, and I think this is a good response to that. Uh, you also tweet, 2016 election shook what young evangelicals thought they knew to be true regarding church and conservatism. Uh, so much in flux for them right now. And this is more of the response that I've heard from people. Like, how can uh, white evangelical men primarily vote for a guy like our current president? Um, so can you just uh, unpack these thoughts a little bit more for me? Right. So um, within the evangelical church's relationship to politics over the last, you know, several decades, um, it's tended to take a, a strong conservative bent. And for those of us who were raised in that, um, we embrace that sense of limited government, um, conservative values, um, morality as central to what makes a nation great. And one of the things I think that came to a head in the 2016 election is that um, there are actually two groups of 
conservatives calling for limited government. And the, I think the way I expressed it in one of those series of tweets is that a, a liberty-based vision of government where the citizens are free to make choices can come from two different places. It can come from conservatives who are committed to self-governance hmm. and they say, the government doesn't need to make choices for me to force me to do the right thing because I will do the right thing. Yeah. And so government is limited because I'm limiting myself hmm. and um, they shouldn't get in my business. They shouldn't tell me how to run every detail of my life. Um, but they can trust me because I have the moral character and the fortitude to love my neighbor well. And, and our communities are going to govern themselves and we're all going to look out for each other and have each other's best interests at heart. That is, I think, the conservatism that a lot of us thought we were signing up for. Um, this understanding of morality being central to our decision-making process, self-government. What has become clear in 2016 is that there is a form of conservatism that is saying limited government, that means no governance, that people are actually looking for license in their libertarianism, not a sense of self-governance, but that no one can tell me what to do. Hmm. And so when I see a politician or a leader who is calling for limited government and freedom and deregulation, and at the same time, they are living lives that have no boundaries, like they will not even be bound by the social covenant of marriage. Like they have no respect for basic human contracts between people in relationships. And that same person is saying deregulate and limited government. That is a person I say, you don't want any checks on your behavior. Hmm. It's not that you're going to check yourself. It's that you have resisted the idea of any kind of check on your actions. And so I am very much, I think a person's self-governance, when I look at a person's life and I see how they are regulating their, their own world of their body, of their family, their own civil institution of their marriage and their family, that's tell, that will tell me how they're going to operate in a larger frame of um, power over a larger group of people. Mm. And so I think for a lot of younger evangelicals, we thought we were buying into one form of conservatism only to realize that a lot of people were using the same words and meaning something very different by it. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the future holds? <sighs> I read a, yeah. Um, I think we should expect more people speaking in the name of conservatism that are cloaking nationalism and um, racism. Mm. And we're going to have to learn to call that out and distinguish between liberty that is based in morality and liberty that is being called for on the basis of uh, 
license. And my husband and I were talking just this last week, and I said, I feel like this is the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And you had these two movements happening within um, a decade of each other with very different moral foundations. And um, all of the things that went right for the American Revolution and some of the um, people who participated in the American Revolution went back to France to try to bring um, freedom and equality and fraternity to to the French. And it went totally wrong there because, in part, they undercut the moral systems that were necessary for freedom equality and brotherhood and I think one of the things that we are going to have to reckon with is that insofar as people have left the institutional church insofar as they are not truly moral you know they are not seeking virtue that we're going to see some very dark expressions of humanity in the name of conservatism and we're going to have to learn to recalibrate what we once understood as right and wrong or what was so easily what used to be simplistic to us that we could say you can safely be conservative i don't think that's the case anymore we're going to see some very dark expressions of the human heart being put forward in a moral less conservatism, a conservatism that lacks a moral framework. Yeah. A voice that I think has been helpful on this topic is uh, Russell Moore. Uh, and over the past few days, there have, there's been some news uh, about the SBC uh, considering removing him from his position as uh, president of the e- ELRC. Um, what do you think is happening within uh, the Southern Baptist world to, to make them question whether or not Russell is a helpful voice on these sorts of topics? I think what we're seeing there is actually par for the course within the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay. Um, the, di- the divides that have been there have existed for years, um, even decades, in two different visions of what it means to be Southern Baptist. And, um, you know, some of this is things like, is is Christianity somewhat cultural? You know, what role does the church play in my upstanding religious life that, you know, that this part of this larger uh, way I navigate the world, that it's part of it. Mm. And, um kind of a pragmatism. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also a a strong missional component to uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. And I think one thing that sets the SBC apart is that it's not a denomination in the proper sense, that these are voluntary associations. Um, Even the discussion around Dr. Moore's you know, whether he would be asked to resign or there are very few people that can actually force him out within Mm. the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not it doesn't have this this central infrastructure that um, another denomination might have that, you know, that's more traditional. So a lot of the tension that we're seeing 
in a place like the Southern Baptist Convention is in part due to the, to the way they are structured. It is a loose association. And in that kind of association, you know, you, you can boycott and say, yeah. well, fine, I'm going to take my money where I want it to go. Um, but I don't think that the divide is anything new. Um, it has been more pronounced. I think the 2016 election has been a perfect opportunity to magnify the differences that already exist. But this kind of inherent tension between what is the church for and why do we attend church and what are the goals of church, those have existed um, within the Southern Baptist Convention for decades. Mm-hmm. So we're just seeing it uh, in a... Uh in a fresh light today. Yeah, and I think, like I said, the election was the perfect opportunity to magnify mm. differences. And I do think it's a generational difference as well. Um, particularly, you know, Southern Seminary has, you know, with Dr. Mueller's um, presidency, it's, it's taken a, a much more conservative missional approach. And so they've trained decades now of, uh, young pastors, young men and women coming out of there with this vision for a very missional, gospel-centric approach to church. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just going to come in conflict with people who hold a slightly different approach to what the church is doing in society. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, let's do this. We're coming up on 40 minutes, so let's... Talk about your uh, most recent book, Humble Roots, uh, and anything else that, that you're planning on working on. Um, and then we'll hit a few rapid-fire questions that we always do at the end of the podcast, and then we'll be done. Great. Cool. Uh, so Humble Roots came out October of 2016? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and tell yes. us about that book. So um, I felt like I wanted to follow up the conversation that started and made for more, and that as we talked earlier, focused on what it meant to be human, um, to live in this vision of the Imago Dei and the glory of God being displayed in our life. And what I discovered is that a lot of times um, theological truths are held in tension by uh, another truth. And so everything that is true about the glory of God radiating through our lives is held in tension by the limits of creaturehood. Hmm. Um, so we are made to look like God, but we are not God. Hmm. Um, so what does it mean to be embodied within human limits? And um, how do we navigate the fullness of the identity that we've been given as creatures? And what I had found um, as I was pursuing that topic theologically, is that there's always these really, really practical pressure points that can tell you whether your theology is actually operating in your daily life. Mm -hmm. And for me, the pressure point was a a time of anxiety and worry and feeling stretched and burdened by very good things. Um, It was the good work of writing, the good work of parenting, the good work of you know, helping my husband um, in church ministry, and yet feeling very unhappy, very anxious, very burdened down. And I 
had come across the passage in Matthew 11 where Christ calls us to come to him. And he says, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Mm. And he continues that by saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And it's that word lowly is humble. And so as I was meditating and processing that passage, I saw that in Christ's mind, there was a connection between his humility and his embrace of human limits and rest and peace. And so he basically calls us not to this vague, you know, embrace of your your human limitations, but a very specific learning process of how did Christ embrace human limits? How did he humble himself? What did it mean for the God of the universe to become a creature? And that took me to Philippians 2, um, you know, that classic hymn text there that Paul talks about um, Jesus Christ not counting it um, robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took on the form of the servant and was made in human likeness. Mm. And from that, it just became a, a process of digging into these different areas of life and saying, how does an embrace of limits, how does humility free us to experience the rest that God intends for us? Mm. And and so for me, it was very much simple things like you, you are an embodied person. And as a human being with the body, you have to learn to care for that. You have to sleep. You have to eat. You have to exercise. And if you don't, you will feel the effects of it. Yeah. Um, mentally, you know, it's things like intellectual humility that says you can't know everything. You can't know the perfect choice for your child's schooling. You can't know the perfect choice you know, you can research all you want and read every blog possible and read every expert and still be limited in your ability to know the perfect ideal solution. Mm. And that's okay. And God intends for you to live in these spaces of humility and trust him um, to be the omniscient one, not yourself. Yeah. Um, so the theme of humble roots is to call us back to this embrace of limits for the purpose of rest mm -hmm. and peace, um, in trusting God to be God. And it's okay if we're just human beings. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we had Nancy Guthrie with us this past weekend here at park and, uh, she spoke uh, for a while about uh, the power of Christ being made perfect in our weakness. And, uh, and Paul really just embracing, although he had reason to boast, embracing his weakness so that God might uh, get more glory. Um, so that's great. I, I would recommend everyone check out Humble Roots as well as Made for More. And again, you can find those uh, parkchurchdenver.org slash podcast. You'll see Hannah's name there. You can uh, click on it, and it'll take you to the show page where you can find links to everything that we talk about here on the show. Um, and speaking of which, we should have a couple links popping up from these rapid-fire questions. So uh, tell me your favorite TV show, movie, and or book that you've seen or read recently. 
I am a big Parks and Rec fan. Now, I know that's been off the air for a while, but I had children, young children, when it was on. And so my husband and I binge-watched it a couple months ago, and I finally had, like, self-knowledge that (laughs) I – minus the organizational capacity, I am Leslie Nope, like (laughs) – voraciously optimistic in the face of complete failure sometimes. Okay. So love Parks and Rec. <laughs> nice. Um, what's the, the nerdiest thing that you're into right now? Like the thing that you kind of don't want to tell me that, that you're enjoying. Oh my goodness. Let's see. My son, this it, it, is, I think this is cool. See, it's hard to know if it's nerdy or not because <laughs> The things I find really interesting, my, my son and I, he um, has been watching the Iditarod and he convinced us to get to buy the GPS package so we could track each of the <laughs> sled dog teams. So we spent the last four or five days watching these sled dogs up in um, Alaska. That's that's. That's great. See, I think that's cool. I think that's really cool. So I don't know. I, I hadn't, um, hadn't even heard of. Is it a show? The Iditarod? Yeah. What is that? Um, it's the race from, I think it's uh, Fairbanks to Nome. Okay. Um, sled dog race. And, uh, like, it was fine that we were just kind of keeping. It's, like, I think eight to ten days long. And we were just keeping general track of it. But then halfway through, my my 10-year-old's like, I really want to get the GPS. Can we Can we buy the package where we can watch it? you know, in real time. Ah, so gotcha. we shelled out for that. Okay. Yeah, that's great. It's, it might be considered nerdy to some, but I think it, I think it's cool. Yeah. Uh, see, that's my problem. That, that is the fundamental problem with my life is I don't know what is nerdy and what is not. And so mm. like junior high, I just gave myself to stuff with abandon <laughs> and had no idea how much of an outlier it was because I thought it was cool that everybody, you know, don't people read like Jane Austen and listen to Bach in junior high? Because that's what my family did. <laughs> I think that's great. Who cares what other people think or are, 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 is nerdy? Um, what's the best meal that you've had recently? Mm, so this was not like a, a great meal, but my children thought it was a great meal, and that made it a great meal. We um, – we went out to Williamsburg, Virginia to see a traveling exhibition of paintings and it was late and we pulled in. It was like eight o'clock and we had to find a place to eat. And we came to this homestyle restaurant and we we're just like, okay, just go in. It was a steakhouse and the prices were horrible. They were so high for the quality of the food. But my 10 year old son ordered a steak and I think the thing cost like $25, $30. It was yeah. horrible. Yeah. And he thought, because of the price, he thought we were in this, like, four-star restaurant. <laughs> he, he kept going, I've never had, I've never been in such a fancy place before. <laughs> and so it was not great food, but it was a wonderful meal. Yeah. Because my children were thoroughly impressed by it and thought we had hit, like, master chef quality right. level. Mm-hmm. It's funny how uh, how high price uh you know, most people assume that leads to high quality. Not always true. No, not true in this case. So what did you get? Uh, crab cakes. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there you go. They were. They were. They were okay. Yeah, but, gotcha. yeah. Um, okay, last one. 
uh, and I'm stealing this one from a guy named Tim Ferriss. Uh, if you could put a billboard anywhere in the world, where would you put it and what would it say? Oh, this is Leslie Nope coming out in me. Um, <laughs> I would put a billboard in my home county. It's a coal mining community. Yeah. It's uh, white. It's working class. And this is terrible. I can't even say I can't believe I'm saying this. And I would say, OK, is not good enough <laughs> because there it was so uh, mediocrity was just that was what I grew up with. Um, it was a cultural um, you, you didn't stick your head up. You didn't excel. Uh, if you did, you would kind of embarrass other people because you were doing better than they were. Mm. So um, there was kind of a cultural um, embrace of mediocrity in the broader region I was growing up in. It always, and obviously I'm not living there now. Um, but when I went off to college and I had the chance to excel and it be rewarded, it was such a freeing experience. Um, and now I just, I want to shout. I'm going to say, okay, is not good enough. But, <laughs> but again, that's Leslie Nope talking and I probably shouldn't. I probably should be more charitable. Yeah, I think it's okay to call people to excellence. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think that's all I've got. Anything else from you? No. Okay. But those were amazing questions at the end. And um, oh, well, thank a you. little, uh, Probably want to change all of my answers, but again, that's Leslie up talking. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have you on the show, uh, you know, when your next book comes out, and we can do those same questions again. It'll be great. Um, yeah, Hannah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it uh, for our interview with hannah anderson thank you as always for joining us for the park church podcast if you enjoy it uh, i'd encourage you to hop into itunes and uh, subscribe to the show and while you're in there if you could take just a second to rate and review the show that will help other people find it uh, if you have any thoughts comments questions concerns you can always email me at james at parkchurchdenver.org i'd love to hear uh, what you enjoy about the show or what you think we could make better and um, yeah, that'll do it. We'll see you next month for the next episode of the Park Church Podcast.